Welcome to the Teen Peds Talks, Conversations on Child Health Equity, brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, experts in pediatrics, and advocates for children. Thank you for joining us for our episode. This series of podcasts will have important conversations with pediatric healthcare providers who are developing efforts to positively impact child health inequities. I am your host, Jessica Peck, NAPNAP's Executive Board President. I'm a pediatric clinician, a clinical professor at Baylor University, anti-trafficking advocate, and mother of four. Welcome to this episode of Team Peds Talks. I am your host, Dr. Jessica Peck, and I am so excited to welcome our guest on the show today, Dr. Laura Rutger. She is an assistant professor and director of the Pediatric Nurse Practitioner Program in the College of Nursing at Jefferson. That's Philadelphia University and Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is coincidentally my husband's hometown. She serves as chair of the Childhood Obesity Special Interest Group for the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, and she has provided care for pediatric patients and their families for more than 13 years in both the pediatric hospital and outpatient settings. Her research interests focus on childhood obesity, developmental pediatrics, adverse childhood experiences, trauma-informed care, and simulation pedagogies in graduate nurse practitioner education. So, so well-rounded in your scholarship. Your education includes a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing, a Master's of Science in Advanced Practice Pediatric Nursing from Thomas Jefferson University, and a PhD in Nursing Philosophy from the Catholic University of America. And today, we are going to be talking with, with Dr. Rutger about access to food and healthy foods and disparities in the accessibility of healthy foods. So, Laura, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you on Team Peds Talks. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Peck. Absolutely. And you can call me Jessica because we're going to have an informal chat here. Uh, So why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this area and how you developed your clinical practice and scholarship to be an expert on this topic? Yes. Um, so I, on a daily basis, take care of children and their families, um, monitoring their growth and development from newborn through adolescence. Um, nutrition is a big piece of um, my n- normal daily uh, interview process with children and adolescents and their families, uh, identifying for deficiencies, um, identifying disease patterns associated with abnormal nutritional deficiencies, and then uh, having discussions with families and children and adolescents about how to correct those nutritional deficiencies um, by things that they can simply do at home, perhaps uh, community resources or other referrals associated with the deficiencies uh, need to be made. But having those conversations early on, um, watching their growth and development, um, their growth charts closely to identify if there are any um, abnormalities, jumps, spikes, or drops in their growth, um, and immediately uh, start having those conversations to avoid 
uh, morbidities um, in children that are associated with poor nutrition, um, such as behavioral problems, um, poor educational outcomes, um, psycho, um, social issues, depression, anxiety, toxic stress, early malnutrition in children can lead to diabetes, hyperlipidemia, cardiovascular disease in adulthood. Um, it can manifest in the practice setting in primary care, again, where I spend most of my days clinically, as a developmental delay, behavioral problems, obesity, again, poor growth, um, inappropriate feeding practices, iron deficiency anemia, dental caries, um, so it's it's really critical that we uh, take a close eye at um, how children and adolescents are growing um, and in the context of the social atmosphere. So what is going on in the family unit um, that may influence nutrition and cause children to have poor nutrition, you know, um, that can lead to, uh, again, some of those issues that I just described. Wow, that is a pretty comprehensive list. And, you know, this is one of the things that I love about nurse practitioners because we do have such a holistic framework on health, and we recognize that mm -hmm. you know, mental health, mm -hmm. emotional health, spiritual health, psychosocial health, all of those things do impact our physical health. And so I really appreciate you setting the framework like that and saying that, mm -hmm. yes, we care about these things because ultimately these do impact your physical health, which can then conversely impact, you know, your other aspects of, of holistic health. And, you know, I think we always talk about when we talk about food disparities, it's really difficult to imagine that in the United States that there are issues here, that there are kids that do have disparities and access to healthy foods. I mean, we just usually think about, you know, a under, underdeveloped countries or things like that. So can you tell us a little bit about how we can open our mindset and widen our horizons and make sure that we're recognizing those disparities, maybe in places where we think they wouldn't exist? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I must emphasize uh, and reinforce what you just had stated. Um, you know, statistically speaking, 11.1% of United States households live um, in a food insecure environment. Um, that's one in six United States children. So, um, and according to Healthy People 2030, our target is 6%. So we have a lot of work to do. Um, so, yeah, so I think that there are um, certainly concentrated areas, uh, those um, that are more rurally located, uh, those populations that are impoverished, you're going to see considerably deeper struggles with food insecurity um, compared to those within the metropolitan areas. Of course, there still is concentrated poverty in urban areas, so I'm not saying to ignore that, but uh, just certainly highlight that it's happening outside of those metropolitan areas. Um, disparities among racial groups. We must focus on those groups that show, uh, in addition to, you know, all of our patients, but highlight the fact that there are substantially more food insecurity in the Black and Hispanic households um, than, you know, 
than when we would like to see. So um, we need to work in those areas particularly more so. Um, and again, identify what are their barriers? Uh, you know, is it, you know, financial? Is it affordability, affordability issues? Is it, um, is it that they live in a multi-generational um, immigrant family? Is it that there are issues related to um, socially, parental separation, divorce? Does the child live in two different households? All of these are great influences on how that's going to impact that child's nutrition status. And so, again, focusing our history taking on those disparities and barriers that, barriers that you identify from a good history taking will really impact the uh, interventions that you provide to that child, adolescent, and family that are really going to mean something and, and really be effective in combating that the food insecurity that um, you may identify. Well, you know, you and I were talking before we started recording about the different ways and kind of unexpected ways that food insecurity might present in a clinical setting, uh, different symptoms or, or, or chief complaints. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So um, food insecurity increases the child's risk for developing behavioral problems. They might be um, outlashing, um, having inappropriate behaviors at home or in the school setting. And so evaluating for how the child is doing at home behaviorally and how they're doing in school can certainly provide an inkling into and, and further uh, uncover perhaps um, a nutritional issue. Poor educational outcomes. Studies have shown that uh, in kindergarten students, reduced academic achievement in math and reading over a four-year period. So prior to them entering kindergarten, that food insecurity affects their academic achievement in kindergarten, particularly in math and reading subjects. Limited access to food causes stress, leading to depression, anxiety, and toxic stress. In adolescents especially, uh, it will present as dysthymia and suicidal ideation. So again, asking those good questions and identifying how that child is emotionally handling issues at home and at school, making sure that you are really getting a good assessment of the adolescent in terms of their high-risk behaviors to identify if there are any uh, risk factors for depression and if they've had any thoughts about suicidal ideation. Wow, that is really something heavy to think about. And I think, you know, as, as everyday clinicians, we don't always connect those things, but that should definitely be in our lens of differential when they present. Mm -hmm. with, I mean, you're, we're talking about food insecurity, and now you're talking about suicidal ideation. Right. And so I think the food is essential to life. And so I mm -hmm. appreciate you, uh, you know, bringing up that that really important point. You talked a little bit too about malnutrition being as associated with risk for development of conditions. Can you just review those briefly again and, and what consequences those can have? Yes. So uh, early malnutrition in childhood uh, can lead to diabetes, hyperlipidemia, cardiovascular disease, obesity in adulthood. Because they are ingesting food, perhaps, so we were talking about food insecurity earlier and food um, and 
and and how that can be associated with food deserts, which is the lack or limited access to nutritional foods. Most oftentimes in these communities, they have an increased risk of food insecurity because there's a lack of full-service grocery stores offering them um, produce um, and healthy choices when um, they um, are making foods at home. They have a higher percentage of fast food restaurants. So oftentimes, these families will access fast food as their primary source of nutrition for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And that can certainly lead to um, the diabetes, high cholesterol, um, and cardiovascular disease, as well as um, and, uh, an overgrowth in their, in their weight. Um, so, again, identifying you know, what, what is available in their community that can sort of combat those issues because, you know, the lack of full service grocery, grocery stores, um, might be because they live in a rural area. They might not have a car to drive to get to the grocery store. They might not be able to walk. They may be taking care of their, you know, their elderly, um, mother who, you know, who's living in a multi-generational household. The mother is taking care of their children along with her mother. Um, so it might not be feasible for them to travel far to, to get food. And they might only be able to access the grocery store on the corner, which doesn't have the highly nutritious food that larger grocery stores can offer. It also can be more expensive. And so oftentimes, those families who live in food insecure areas are unable to afford um, food at that cost um, because they are either unemployed or underemployed. Um, and so, again, that leads into your strategies as a practitioner um, and, and what you can do in that regard. But it really, it really, um, emphasizes the need for the practitioner to get a good history taking, to understand, get at the heart of the issue. But kind of getting an overall holistic um, view of what is going on in the family unit. And I love that. One of my favorite things I heard from um, Dr. Mona Hanna-Tisho, who was our keynote speaker in at our NAPNAP conference in New Orleans, she talked about how she made her pediatric practice above a grocery store and she would write prescriptions mm. for, um, yeah. she would write prescriptions for different vegetables that maybe they had never heard of and yeah. they would have to go down there and find it, which I thought was a great a thing. Now you, t- you, you lead to an important point, Laura, here when we talk about how we identify these and as, you know, scholars and mm-hmm. clinicians, we know that it's important to use validated screening tools and mm-hmm. you talk to us about if you sus- should suspect food insecurity, about those screening tools and how you would go about assessing that in the clinical environment. Yeah, so if the practitioner does have a concern that uh, this is a household that is food insecure, there are many different tools. One that I would recommend is the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended hunger vital sign, which is a tool that was developed by Children's Health Watch. It is, has a sensitivity of 97% and a specificity of 83%. And it's a quick and easy tool, which is why I like it. Um, the questions pertain to um, 
how their food situation has been over the last 12 months. So the first question, within the past 12 months, we worried whether our food would run out before we got money to buy more. And the second question, within the past 12 months, the food we bought just didn't last and we didn't have enough money to get more. And the parent would answer on um, a scale of often true, sometimes true, never true, don't know, or they refused to respond. If there is a positive screening is identified if they respond as often true or sometimes true to one or both statements. Uh, and this tool certainly can be utilized if the practitioner identifies that there's a risk for food insecurity. But what I recommend and what a lot of the research recommends is that this should really be part of our normal um, evaluation of all patients. It should be routine. Right, so we should be asking this at almost every visit. You know, certainly you can determine with your practice, you know, how frequently you'd like to offer it, depending on, you know, what is going on with that family. But there should be a, a routine process that is followed in terms of asking these questions at every visit. Well, I think that's a great idea because when you were talking about 11% of children who are food insecure, mm-hmm. we're, we're talking about millions of children across the United States that are experiencing this. And I think a lot of times, you know, when we're talking about social disparities, it can be difficult, I think, for patients to disclose that, you know, because of the shame and stigma that may be associated mm-hmm. with that. But I think there's also, you know, recog- a lack of recognition that this mm-hmm. does impact your health. You think about going to your primary health care provider because you have a cold or you mm-hmm. want to make sure you don't have COVID or maybe you need immunizations, but you wouldn't think of them addressing food insecurity. Right. Exactly. And it should be thought of the same way. And you certainly uh, lend to uh, an important piece in terms of strategy. And um, and that is reducing that stigma by having a positive, welcoming conversation with all your families. Um, again, taking the time to ask the right questions, using the hunger vital sign, uh, displaying posters and positive messaging around the, the office to really welcome those conversations and, again, reduce that stigma associated with food insecurity. Um, so it's, it's, it's certainly um, really critical to have a sensitive approach to families when we are discussing food insecurity. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you the question I've asked everybody and that seems, you know, old by now, but that everybody's talking about. And how do you think, Laura, that COVID has impacted food insecurity and what you're seeing uh, across mm-hmm. the nation? Yeah. So, unfortunately, uh, you know, COVID has really made uh, our communities fear walking outside their house. Uh, um, and even in the face of a medical issue that they're experiencing, we are seeing less and less patients and families coming in for their routine well visits. And we're really trying to encourage them that it is safe to come in to see us because we want to make sure that the, your child and adolescent is growing and developing appropriately as we would expect. We thankfully with 
safeguards in place. We're learning a lot as we go through COVID, but we can make families feel very comfortable coming into our practice with routine screening that's completed, um, staggering patient visits, you know, separating those who are uh, well from those who may have the possibility that they could have COVID or any other illnesses. So the good thing is, is that we are adapting and we are reaching our patients at this point. But unfortunately, there was a period of time where they weren't coming in. And that was really a a very big concern. Um, Additionally, with kids being out of school, they had less access to their the lunch program. So for these kiddos who are food insecure, they might have been having breakfast and lunch served to them at, at the schools. And in the springtime, they were out of school. And so they were having difficulty with accessing food then. Same for the summer program with summer lunches. We saw children having difficulty accessing um, at that point. But uh, As I said, you know, as we go through, we learn lessons from COVID and and we learn to, uh, you know, hopefully have safeguards in place to prevent these issues in the future. But right now it looks like uh, really positive in terms of seeing our patients back in the office, which really makes me very, very happy. I agree. I think that's been a concern of pediatric providers across the country because we know that, you know, parents who usually come to us for advice are, like you said, are afraid to leave their homes and, and are trying to manage things. And, and we want to make sure that kiddos are, are healthy and have access to primary and preventive care as well as uh, care for sick and you know episodic illness. But you said one thing, Laura, that really made me think about a prior episode that we had talking about, you know, cultural responsiveness and cultural humility, especially when it comes to areas of food insecurity, and we had a guest on who talked, as as a black woman, talked about her experience with uh, anorexia and other eating disorders and how people would make fun of uh, a food that she would bring, and we know that, you know, there are different uh, food practices and dietary preferences, and so do you have any tips for how we can be sensitive and and approach those questions sensitively, especially if we're of a different, you know, culture or ethnicity from our patients? Absolutely. So I think that um, it might be cliche to say, but we are lifelong learners, right? We know that as nurses, but I think in all professions, we can never lose sight of there's always more to learn. And we should never be, um, that should never be a barrier for us uh, in terms of how we approach our patients. So I might not know what is the um, the traditional diet of uh, a certain culture, but I should be able to ask those questions. Um, if, it, if, you know, certainly that means how my strategies are going to be influenced, right? So, for instance, um, you know, Mexican-Americans, they tend to um, have foods that are high in carbohydrates, high in calories, high in cholesterol, working with those families to find out, you know, what are reasonable substitutions, um, what kind of meal plan uh, can we uh, recommend that would be still honoring the tradition of their uh, culture, um, 
but at the same time, giving them some healthy substitutes. Um, you know, myplate.gov offers recipes for, um, for different, for cultures of all, of, of many different cultures, and it does so in a healthy, um, mindset. It also, as we're talking about food insecurity, also gives some recommendations and tips on recipes for low-cost healthy eating. So uh, I think, you know, we really have to be sensitive to the fact that we need to be aware of our the cultures that we are providing care to. We need to be able to ask the right questions and then be able to work with the families on what seems like a reasonable goal, what seems like a reasonable plan um, to still maintain their tradition, but then support healthy growth and development and eating patterns. I completely agree. And one of my former DNP students was from Nigeria, and she came down to South Texas, you know, in the Valley, and she was a student at Texas A&M Corpus Christi and worked down in the Valley with a group of Mexican-Americans who were, uh, she worked through the community center, and she worked with uh, those patients that had uh, diabetes, and she taught classes uh, about, you know, how to make foods that were, you know, preferred in their culture, but that were good for, for their for their diabetes. And it was really beautiful to see that cross-cultural communication and that cross-cultural connection. They loved, I think, that she was from Nigeria and she used in-ear, you know, uh, technology to translate. And it was great. Actually, I th- I, her, her work is just about to be published. So I will, I will post that on the resources here when it comes. But I think that, you know, we're seeing more and more we're able to do those cross-cultural connections and nurses especially can do those really well. Well, Laura, I want to ask you, is there any particular story that you'd like to share, anything that comes to mind, you know, from your own personal experience or clinical practice that really drove this home for you? Yeah, I, I think that, again, I, I deal uh, with patients in the rural communities, um, those that are um, a highly populated region of Mexican-Americans, um, and they they certainly need a lot in terms of their education and and resources and so a lot of my days are filled with you know providing them with the education that they need to grow healthy uh again working within the uh honoring their tradition in terms of the recommendations that i have in terms of healthy eating patterns um, it's, it's reaching out to the community and what they need. You know, the, the organization that I work for provides for diabetic patients specifically, providing them with access to fresh fruits and vegetables. We find, again, that in our area of care, um, our patients don't have enough money to um, to buy healthy fruits and vegetables, um, or they don't have the ability to go to the grocery store. And so we're providing those foods, healthy foods, in the practices in order to increase their access and, um, and promote good health. Um, so uh, it's a really big part of my role clinically um, because I do see it so much. And, uh, you know, really getting involved in the community um, 
Following up with patients after they've been referred to community resources is really important. And I see that manifest every day. You know, patients are very uh, positively influenced by the investment that we as providers take in their care. So even after they've left our practice, it's really critical to follow up with them, even if it is just because you referred them to the Women, Infant, and Children Supplemental Program or um, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Plan um, or, you know, informing them about the free or reduced breakfast and lunch meals that can be offered in the school setting or the summer uh, meal program, uh, community food pantries that we will recommend them uh, to go to. So I, I think that's one of the most critical things um, that I find. It, it really helps to strengthen that relationship with the family is just simply following up with them and, and getting involved in the community. So it's developing a food pantry within your practice site. Um, having a WIC clinic co- like co-located on site with your practice. Um, Collaborating with local groups to operate community-supported agricultural pickups. Um, and, and then further, you can take it further, advocating for your patients um, at the state, national, and federal level to protect and increase the access to and funding for federal program, programs like WIC and SNAP and those school nutrition programs that I talked about. Well, those are all really great practical tips that we can all do. And this has been such an interesting and enlightening conversation. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners? Anything else we didn't cover? Mm -hmm. Any last-minute words of advice? Mm -hmm. I have three things. So, and we've talked about them throughout this conversation today. And I just want to really just drive it home. It's really important to screen for barriers to access um, healthy foods, connecting families with food and nutrition resources within the community, and again, advocating for protecting and increasing that access and funding to support access to healthy foods for all children and families. Well, those are all really great three points. And, Laura, you said something, actually, that is going – I just wrote down in my quote book, literally. I keep a quote book. This is such a great quote, and I think I'd like to end with this. You said, families are positively impacted by the investments we make in their care. And I just – that was really – that was really impactful to me because everything that you just described is an investment – that you're making mm-hmm. in care, as you talked about being a lifelong learner, using validated mm-hmm. screening tools, being a trustworthy mm-hmm. provider who follows up. Those are all investments that we make in their care that can have positive impacts on families. So I'd just like to thank you for the investment that you made in pediatric <laughs> providers today by sharing with us all of this information. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you again for having me. All right, and all of Dr. Rutgers resources will be listed on this episode of Team Peds Talks, and we hope this is helpful and impactful to you as you continue to listen and, and by listening, making an investment in the care of families to make positive impacts. Thanks so much for listening, and join us again next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Team Peds Talks. Conversations on Child Health Equity, brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, Experts in Pediatrics, and Advocates for Children. 
If you like our series and want to earn continuing education for this episode and others, visit PEDSCE at ce.napnap.org and click on the Team PEDS Talks menu item. If you complete the CE activity for all 16 podcast episodes, you may request a certificate of completion to demonstrate that you have completed the CE requirements for all episodes in the Team PEDS Talks Conversation on Child Health Equity Curriculum. Please join us again next time, and thank you for listening.